I'm Letitia, host of the New Leaf podcast, created for new and working mums everywhere. Over the course of this series, I interview women from a variety of industries to share their journeys of what happened to their professional and personal identities when they had their babies and headed back to work, exploring the good, the bad, and the ugly. The motherhood space can be a scary one, but it doesn't have to be. By interviewing women in all spaces and lines of work and sharing their different experiences, I want to show you that there is no one right way and that we're all kind of winging it. My mission is to revolutionize the way we look at pregnancy, birth and motherhood, taking the judgment, pressure and expectations out and putting the confidence back in so that one day we can all say that it's my motherhood, my choice. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at New Leaf Podcast if you want to continue the conversation with the hashtag MyMotherhoodMyChoice. Before we begin, I've got something extra special for you. Click the episode details to subscribe to New Leaf Nutshell, my exclusive monthly write-up straight to your phone to break down and summarise some of the most controversial motherhood topics in a nutshell. Right now, I'm settling the sleep training debate, exploring the murky baby sleep industry and detailing the pros and cons of sleep training, as well as what to do when nothing is working, all to support anyone who's sleep deprived right now. I've referenced nearly 100 academic articles to give you impartial and well-researched advice with none of the judgment. Doing all the googling so you don't have to. Right, let's get on with my intro to our next lovely guest. The amazing Illy Morrison rounds off the end of New Leaf Series 2 today with her thought-provoking and inspired chat with me just a week ago. Illy is a midwife, a hypnobirthing teacher, mama to two-and-a-half-year-old Isan, and also post- and pre-birth debrief consultant with her business, Mixing Up Motherhood. Illy helped me to fulfill a dream of mine for this series, which was to interview a midwife who has also become a mum to see how the process of becoming mum changed both the professional and personal practices. Illy gave me so much more with her interview and challenged a lot of my perspectives about advocacy, as well as reminding me of the importance of questioning the norm, whatever that norm may be, which we all occasionally forget or allow to pass us by when it matters most. Illy's conversation with me surprised me in a lot of ways. Firstly, she comes from the atypical space of having gone to a small family-run school as opposed to a mainstream one. And when you have that context, it really helps you to see why this is someone who was always going to strike out and do something unique in whatever field she was ever going to go into. Illy's current practice of birth debrief and birth preparation is something that she has been unbelievably successful in. Her Instagram page, which markets her business, has nearly 24,000 followers after just a year. And she is clearly fulfilling a real need in the birthing space, which doesn't yet exist. If you're not sure what a birth debrief is, it's often offered to women who may have had quite a traumatic birth and wish to talk it through with someone to feel heard and supported. In the UK, this is typically with your NHS provider. Everyone has the right to ask for one, but if you have a typical birth on paper, they won't volunteer it to you. 
Something that can be marked down as a normal birth to a doctor or midwife may not have felt normal or safe to you as the woman who's actually going through it. A point which Illy makes beautifully, and a point that I have heard firsthand from so many women who felt ashamed of feeling upset about a birth that they knew was fine, according to their healthcare provider. I know that many other countries don't even offer this service. Having suffered from her own traumatic birth, something that Illy said really stuck out to me which was that if you suffer from a difficult birth or have a complaint about your care, very often the last place you want to return to is the scene of the crime. It made me think about how many women must be avoiding these conversations with their care providers because they feel frightened, ashamed, weak, or frankly just too traumatized to reach out and ask. Illy's training as a hypnobirthing provider is undoubtedly a massive asset in this space as she understands all too well the power of language. I know myself how simple adjectives people use to describe your birth can be devastating, even if well-meant, if you are still getting over something that is incredibly emotionally painful. This is where Illy's power clearly lies and is something that I'm sure is a huge contributor to her success. Illy mentions a few times her frustration with an excessive focus on mark schemes and policy around things that she feels has a lot more nuance. Something I found incredibly frustrating at school and with my own education was the fixation on an extremely set path. Our mark schemes were decided, the right answer agreed even on more interpretive or philosophical subjects such as English literature or art, only to find that the so-called right answer would change like the wind with a new exam board selected by your school or a new mark scheme. I remember distinctly my dad's frustration as he tried to explain a scientific concept to me that I was struggling with, only for me to keep saying, yeah dad but you can't work it out that way because it's not in the mark scheme. I remember him replying to me, but Letty, you will still get the right answer this way because you understand it better. The only argument I could come back with was to say, yeah, but I want an A star dad. I'm quite traditional and conventional in a lot of ways, but this fights with a very strong natural challenging instinct. It is a weird combination, which I know my own teachers found tough, especially in my early teens. Sorry. It also meant that I was often torn between people-pleasing, academic achievement, which my family prized very highly, but also with a quite strong rebellious streak, which meant that I naturally questioned authority and was naughty quite often. Okay, very often. If I didn't like the teacher or felt I didn't respect them for whatever reason, this was sort of inevitable. I felt a real kindred spirit in Hilly in this way, as she is obviously in the camp of challenging the norm and living her life outside this conventional mark scheme. In a lot of ways, I think that all of us at some point feel that the mark scheme mentality hasn't really left us, and no more so than in the space of birth. Whether it's judging our own method of pain relief, our mode of delivery, our birthing location even, baby's birth weight, your own weight gain, how quickly you snap back, ugh, we often hold ourselves to these arbitrary mark schemes. It's worth noting that these also change like the wind, as the academic ones do, as our understanding of birth and the evolution of what being a mother actually is changes. My 93-year-old granny had five babies at home and had to really fight for that right to do so throughout the 50s and 60s. In 2021, home birth these days is often not only celebrated and lauded, but also encouraged by an increasing number of providers in the UK. 
In Turkey, the USA, and in many other countries, the caesarean is often the norm. There are huge variations between countries where birth is more or less medicalized in culture. Another perfect example to me of how there is no right answer when it comes to motherhood. What matters most is our perceptions of our experience, the importance of awareness and education, and kindness from whomever is supporting us in our birth experiences. Birth is its own miracle, with its own path, and is one of the very few things in our overtly micromanaged lives that we just can't apply the same tick boxes to. Reading every book isn't going to get you your A-star. The secret is that the A-star doesn't exist. And feeling confident, safe, and powerful about your birth experience is the most important thing. Oh, so much more to say on this, but I've gone on too long. I'll let you have a think for yourself, but get in touch. Let me know your thoughts. Introducing the amazing Illy Morrison. Welcome, Illy Morrison. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. You're very welcome. I ask all my guests this, but where are you in the world right now? And what can you see in front of you? I'm in Norwich. So everyone in my house works from home. And so I've been booted out of the office because my work is always louder. So it's always over Zoom or whatever. So I'm now in one of the spare rooms, which is quite nice, actually. I've just set up my desk in here. So tell me about your immediate family unit. Who is in it? So my immediate family is me, my husband, Omar, and our daughter, who is two and a half. And her name is Ihsan Sophia. Oh, that's a beautiful name. So how have you found the last two and a half years? Um, ropey at times, but I think that would, <laughs> I'd be lying if I said that wasn't normal. I would probably describe them as transformational. Transformational. Yeah, definitely a good adjective for having children. So I'll just explain very briefly how we know each other, but it's all through the magical world of Instagram. And I've had it on my list for a long time that I really wanted to record with somebody who's worked in midwifery. And Illy was somebody that just kept popping up on my explore feed. And I just loved the vibe of what you were doing, thought it was really interesting. So I just, I'd love to hear that origin story because obviously your life has really changed. So what did you do pre-baby? So I qualified as a midwife in 2017. Immediately after qualifying, I went to work at a busy South London hospital unit. I'd been married for about four years, maybe. And we said, why don't we just have a baby and just give it a go? And I, I, I thought, I'll get into work and see how it goes and how I like it. And I was living in Norwich and working in London. That's quite a commute. Yeah, three or four shifts in a row and then stay with my auntie and then come home for three days of the week. But it's it was exhausting. And then after about five months of working, I got pregnant and I thought that I'd been really smart. And I was like, oh, look, I'll even get maternity pay. And I missed it by a month. Um, <gasps> no. But it worked out to be a good thing in the end, which we'll come on to. So then I went on maternity leave. I didn't have an obligation to go back because I hadn't had leave. So it was really a choice thing. But I wanted to go back to see how I would juggle my daughter and, and I needed an income. And so I went back and I would take her with me from Norwich and my sister-in-law would have her and I would work and then come home. And I did that for about six months and then was just like, no, this isn't it. I can't live like this. And also I'd had a traumatic birth of my own and actually had found myself becoming increasingly triggered by certain situations. The whole sort of state of the NHS meant that I wasn't able to give the care that I wanted to give. 
And as I became a mother, my focus had shifted. So what actually mattered to me shifted significantly. I no longer wanted to give every part of myself to my job because then what was left for my child. So then I quit my job and I applied in Norwich to work on the staff bank. That's just when they need cover, they can just call you up. So I got the job and a week before they told me I got the job, I had started this Instagram page. So I started mixing up motherhood. And as the time went on, they they would say to me, oh, can you send us this thing? And can you send us that thing? And gradually I was like, I just don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And kept putting it off and putting it off. In that time, my Instagram grew and grew. And I was like, do you know, I'm okay right now financially. Let me just see where, not even see where it goes, but I'd send them the bits for the bank job that they asked for. But in the end, I was on Johanna Fletcher's podcast, Happy Mum, Happy Baby, which sort of in some ways catapulted my account, but not anything huge, not anything that you'd think it would, but it it did something. And around the time of the death of George Floyd, I'd been speaking a lot about racial inequality, particularly in maternity services and the mortality rate amongst black and brown women. And so all of this kind of led me to start teaching Um, about racial equality. So I was doing masterclasses for birth workers and trainee birth workers. And and I started offering birth debriefs and basically carved out my own career. And yeah, I suppose that's where I am now a year later. It's been quite overwhelming at times. Maybe in some ways I've struggled with the speed. I, I had no expectation of anything. I just wanted to share my thoughts, but I'm very grateful for it. 2017, not that long ago, actually. So were you doing something else before? How did you get to midwifery in the first place? And what inspired you to take that career path? So when I was seven, my parents took us out of school. So out of mainstream education, I'm one of eight children. And my parents, alongside some other families, set up a school of their own. So I was educated there between the ages of sort of seven and 16. Oh my God, Um, they set up their own school. Yeah. And how is that different to mainstream education? It's not on the conveyor belt of mainstream education. So it is much more, I suppose you could call it Steiner-esque, but it's not Steiner. It was very much about critical thinking and learning. We were separated into upper and lower schools. There was no mark schemes and things like that. It was about learning the things that actually mattered. So we had a structure. We had English, math, science, languages. We had teachers. We had a school building, school uniforms. We had all of that stuff. And I suppose as black children in a very white place, it was also important that we gained the education that would really benefit us and would be safe for us in safe spaces. My old boyfriend's from Norwich. It it is a pretty white place Mm. as it goes. It's about as white as you can get. Norfolk in general, it is just not a diverse place, is it? Yeah, it's come a long way since sort of 20 years ago. That's a huge decision of your parents. Mm. So they just got together with a load of other families and just said that they wanted to opt out of mainstream. Like, how did that decision come about? Yeah, I think they've probably always been what would be classed as some form of radical in terms of how they do things. (laughs) But I don't think it's radical at all. I think it is just the opportunity to really hone in on fulfilling your child's needs in a different way that we're not necessarily afforded so much now. And I think 20 years ago, it was easier to do that to say, actually, we're taking you out of school. We're going to do this differently. And I failed to mention we're all from a Muslim community here in Norwich and we had come from Brixton. So it was a lot of parents from South London. But yeah, we all had extracurricular stuff that we did and we mixed with non-Muslim children, white children. It was just a different form of education. 
reflecting obviously you've got your own child Mm. how do you feel about that whole experience now yeah because it's not typical no not in the least and I think it has made me who I am obviously now as an adult and thinking about how I would educate my own child I feel it's daunting and it had its challenges and things like that but I think in the sort of grand scheme of things the benefit sort of outweighed the risks essentially and you said it had its challenges what were some of those challenges bureaucracy and all the rest and still you'd always worry that you're not necessarily doing the right thing for them and trying to make sure that it's balanced and that you're exposing them to the right things and protecting them from what you perceive are the wrong things and it comes with its challenges like everything but those challenges won't be different for me as I sort of start to explore what I want to do with this son. So you got to the end of kind of school but in terms of how mainstream or typical things that you did were mm. did you have exams that allowed you to get straight into midwifery no, or how no, did no, that no. All work so I'll go back a little bit so when I was sure. uh, 13 my parents sent me to live in Spain for nine months so part of that was essentially a child swap the family that I went to stay with their son came to live with us for I think six months and then I went to live with them for nine months I'm fluent in Spanish and that meant that when I was 15 I was able to go and do like a Spanish GCSE just to get mm-hmm. it done and then After that, there was a course that was offered at college for people who had failed their GCSEs. So there was lots of complete BS categorization of, oh, you're dyslexic or, well, you've got higher needs and all this. And actually, that was never a thing that we dealt with growing up, like being put in a box or being put in a special Mm -hmm. group. And funnily enough, none of my siblings had this issue. They'd all flown through. They're much more academic. We were all very much treated equally. So... I then went back and I did another year. And after I'd done that, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I considered becoming a paediatric nurse, but actually the reality is I'd thought of doing that because I could do it on what was a diploma, which doesn't exist now, Mm. but I could just get into it with my GCSEs and thought, why not? It gives me a job and it had a bursary. And after that, I didn't get in. There were five places and I was number six. So I worked for a year and then I started an access course. And you only needed GCSEs to get onto it. And I had those and whatever. So that was fine. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I was like, just set yourself up to be able to do something. And the first day we had to introduce ourselves. And so they were going around the classroom and asking everyone what they wanted to be. And I was one of the last people to be asked. And I had heard a few people around the room saying, oh, I'm I'm doing this because I want to be a midwife. And so I just went, yeah, I want to be a midwife, you know, but I felt like I had to commit to something. So that sort of set me on the path to midwifery, really. That's so crazy. So you were just literally like, I need to say something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just going to say it. It wasn't any, it really wasn't. People, a lot of people expect romantic stories of wanting to deliver babies, but it's really nothing to do with that. It was being put on the spot, having to answer, and then it set the tone. I I like applaud your laid backness (laughs) to it. Because I'm fairly neurotic as a character, let's be honest. So have you been like that all your life in terms of just being like, yeah, we'll go with the flow and see what happens? I'm probably the least go with the flow person that you'd probably ever meet, which is interesting because I don't know where that whole attitude came from. I'm a planner. I'm a big planner. I think a lot of it lies in like a fear of rejection. So if you don't care, then you won't care when you're rejected. And And so I just approach a lot of things. I don't think my life depends on anything. If it flops, then it flops. I think that's very honest of you Mm. because I think a lot of people do do that and don't necessarily admit it. And also myself included. So what you're saying really resonates. On the other hand, I actually didn't care. I was actually just like, oh, if I get in, I get in. If I don't, I'll do something else. 
And I think that all goes back to my education as well. I'm not married to this idea of having a degree or anything like that. I don't need paper to show anything. It's interesting that kind of opt-in, opt-out that we have in society. So it was within the realm of control of your parents to do schooling that was different and non-mainstream and aligned with values. And then you've still got this challenge of money has to come from somewhere. Mm. So then it's like, how do you opt back in to the mainstream and how do you deal with that? That must have been quite a challenge. Yeah, I would describe my university years as some of the worst of my life because I was just very constricted by pleasing people, which I'd never had to do, and answering to people that I just didn't have time for. And that's in the nicest way. I felt like suddenly I was a child. And at this Mm. point, I was 21. And I was getting married in the summer of my first year. I felt like I was constantly being reprimanded and being held to these like really weird rules of what you can and can't do and can and can't say. Mm -hmm. And also just anytime I would try and speak about something in a way that wasn't like according to any type of status quo, it would be like, oh, like shut that down. And yeah, I really struggled throughout university. Were there any particular things that stuck out to you that you remember being reprimanded for? It's important to note here that I was the only black student across three cohorts that's huge yeah so that in itself was a a challenge because as a child you don't see racism and you don't see bias but as an adult it becomes very clear I remember a lecturer said does anyone want something and I said yes please and she ignored me and I said yes please she ignored me again and then she asked again and I said me and she turned around in front of a class of 30 students looked down the nose of her glasses and said please And I remember thinking, you're mad. I just said, please. You're insane. Like the way that you have just tried to belittle me in front of a whole room of people about manners when I had already said please numerous times. And then afterwards, I got an email basically straight away calling me in to see the head of midwifery. And I was like, what? In fact, it was calling me in to see one of the senior lecturers. So I went in to speak to the senior lecturer and she said, oh, we've had a sort of a report of a rudeness in a lecture. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she said, oh, but I know that you're not rude, Ilya. I know that it's a cultural thing. Hang on. Like, that is so rude. You mean it's a black thing. But also, if we're going to speak about culture, you've got to understand at least what culture I'm from and you've got no idea. And then that was just one example. Another example, I was with a mentor and she really didn't like me for whatever reason. And I think it was because I just, I very much knew my mind and Mm. we didn't gel. And... (laughs) We'd had this birth together and I was supporting the birth of the baby's head and mm-hmm. she panicked and she she shouted at me across this woman as the woman was giving birth. And I, I remember feeling just really shocked. And mm. I came out of the room and another midwife said to me, oh, how was that? And I said, God, that was just really frenzied. And then she reported it back to this midwife because clearly they're mates. And I don't think I'd said anything wrong, but this... Frenzied isn't yeah, a bad no, word. Yeah, no, I think so. I, she then reported it to uh, the School of Midwifery and she was saying that she was going to fail me on this placement, that she'd been at home and she'd been crying and all sorts. So yeah, when I graduated, I was like, get me the hell out of Dodge. That's what I did. I took a job. I took a very good job and never looked back, really. So you must have had some trepidation or some worries about entering another environment that was like super structured and very kind of computer says no, even for people that have been through normal school that then have to join the NHS say that. So what was that like? So I thought it would be a little bit different being in London, but institutions are institutions. And 
I think mm. I faced a few challenges like that and that same way you're not willing to, to bow down to anything and like you're so confident you're so confident that that description of confidence was never a compliment what they actually meant to say was you are overconfident but as a woman and then as a black woman I already know how confidence has been weaponized against me that was a challenge but equally in the workspace I was like well, now I'm qualified so once you'd got into it, you felt like, look, I've got your tick box qualification and that's done. I feel like I've got a bit more authority to be able to tell people to give me some space. Is that what you mean? I mean, I could just be myself and I had the knowledge to back it up. I'd done the studying, I'd, I'd proven myself. And so now you can just live in your truth and, and, and eventually there'll be people who get on board and there'll be lots of people who don't. But that's a life lesson. I think that's, mm. that's in everything, isn't it? So yeah, it was a transition into an environment that I knew I didn't want to be in long term. Was there a particular trigger that made you think, oh, this isn't for me long term? No, probably not. I just, I didn't want to ever work for other people day in, day out. And it's for some people, they like that structure. And don't get me wrong, I miss it now sometimes, that kind of security (laughs) of it. But I found that it was very restrictive again. And we work in a litigious system and, and it meant that there was a fear of litigation all the time and lots of bureaucracy. And I knew that my strength didn't lie in clinical work. And you said fear of litigation. Do you mean like fear amongst the midwives that you were working with as in they were constantly worried about having done the wrong thing? Or Now, we, you know, the NHS as a system is always fearful of litigation. So once upon a time, you could really get knee deep into it and really give the care that you wanted. But I think now there is just so much like guideline and policy and it's moving towards being less and less women centred and more policy and guideline centred. And so I, I knew that wasn't what I'd signed up for. And it's tricky, isn't it? Because litigation, it's, I don't know, one could argue that it's well meant, right? Because exactly as you say, mistakes do happen Mm -hmm. and you want to be sure that those are properly addressed. And I guess like we're going to get onto this because I think you've got such an interesting space that you're working in now, particularly in like birth trauma. Mm. But those women want to feel like there'll be a consequence, right? So if a midwife has done something wrong, Mm -hmm. they want to feel heard and listened to. And I guess that's a point behind litigation but it's when it becomes constraining that then there's a problem so in what ways did you feel like that fear of litigation was holding midwives back from getting knee deep as you said some will say that they are very happy to work under those circumstances that's Mm. fine but that fear can be so overwhelming that it it keeps you up at night are you going to work with just this constant anxiety of did I write my notes did I do this did I give that did I do the other you know and yeah for me that didn't sit right it was just extremely overwhelming. So it was more of a worry thing that yeah, you yeah. found difficult. And just taking the job home and not in a nice way, not in a way that I felt like impacted people's care, but in a way that was just detrimental to my own well-being. The care for the women was always at the centre of what I was doing. And I would be the first to hold my hands up and be like, oh, mate, you cocked up there. But it was the worry of not writing something or not doing things exactly according to the policy or just always worrying about hypotheticals mm-hmm. continuously. And that, for some people, that really spurs them on. But for me, it was just the, the complete opposite. It just really was not a positive thing. So you said that you must have then got to a space where the clinical work was something that you just didn't feel like was your strength and you wanted to move on. So if it was never going to be in the kind of clinical side of it, Mm -hmm. was there anything in your midwifery experiences that made you think, I've got a different calling here and this is something else that I need to pick up on? 
I think I, I was able to speak to people and had perhaps a, a way of engaging with people. So I would spend hours speaking to my patients and it would be like, Illy, you're spending too long. Illy, come on, you need to do this. You need to do that. You need to do the other. And it's like, I suppose my mum says, it's like, you've got the gift of the gab. <laughs> I just found that really soothing and I really believe in the power of speaking. I'd always wanted to work with the vulnerable people. So if I'd have had to do this within the the sort of constraints of the NHS, I probably would have gone into safeguarding role or a maternal mental health role rather than a clinical on the floor role. I think it was just that real desire to get meaty and to have conversation and to see why people make the decisions that they make. I had a real curiosity about the the minds of people and clinical working didn't really allow for those conversations. And I always felt once I'd met them on delivery suite or on the postnatal ward that it was too late to then impact change in some ways. And so I always wanted to get back to pregnancy and antenatal education and stuff like that. It sounds like you have a real interest in psychology and that's what this sounds like. Exactly. I'm I'm much more about how the mind works and how we can make decisions and what impacts those decisions and how we can enforce them. And yeah, so I think if, if I hadn't trained to be a midwife, I probably would have gone into some type of psychology. But yeah, that's probably what made me realise that being on a time and stuff wasn't really for me. I gave birth in a South London hospital and there was no shortage, even just from observing on the postnatal ward, there was no shortage of safeguarding issues mm. or women that really needed additional support. I don't know whether they were getting it or not, but it was very obvious that there was a, a bigger need than what the mainstream was necessarily mm. applying. So I think that's super interesting. And as a midwife, you must have seen that a lot. Even as a patient, I could see that from like the five other women I was sharing mm-hmm. a room with. So you must have seen that in abundance. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There is a lot. And I think that need is increasing as the population changes and as the stresses mm. change and things like that. But we can't meet it. A lot of the time we can't meet it because we're restricted by time, we're restricted by money, we're restricted by staffing and people fall through the cracks, particularly black and brown women. And I think it's an area that we really need to put some money behind. But unfortunately, if that's not going to be prioritised, then there's not really much we can do about it. Some of the stats around it are pretty horrifying. I have to say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It clearly is there's evidence to show that it needs changing. We're not changing it. Yeah, which is a whole nother conversation. <laughs> but it's so important and shouldn't be glossed over. Yeah. Because think, it's yeah. just yeah. We are taking steps to make these changes, but I think we just can't do it at the speed that we need to and with the thoroughness that we need to. I don't know if this was your experience as a midwife, but it just feels like antenatal and postnatal, frankly, care is just that one thing that just keeps getting axed and it just baffles me as to why because it ends up costing more money in the long term it's the short termism of it which is that if you don't look after a woman properly antenatally they're going to have more mental health needs they don't feel supported they feel isolated they might stop going to appointments because Mm -hmm. they don't Mm -hmm. like their midwife or they end up having a really stressful birth because they're scared because they haven't let's say into antenatal classes because they don't feel represented or they don't feel listened to. And that all has an impact on that woman's experience of their birth and how they cope postnatally as well. It's just the non-logic of it Mm -hmm. sometimes. Do you know what I mean? I think it's really sad because the midwives on the ground want to give so much more. They desperately want to give more. I have worked with some absolutely brilliant midwives who just go into it wholeheartedly and, mm. and I think that midwives get a lot of slack like 
as if it's them that don't want to provide more and they always want to provide more. But if, if I think about what it's like working on a postnatal ward where I've got eight women, eight babies, four of these babies needing extra support and four women needing breastfeeding support, I am stretched so thin that I just can't do it. And that then results in, in sort of women having poor ex- experiences, midwives getting a bad rap. And it's this is so much bigger than just the people on the ground who wish they could give so much more. And you're right, it's the people at the coalface, the people at the front end of the service that then get criticised. Yeah, yeah. It's just that they're dealing with mm-hmm. mad understaffing or... Exactly, as you were referring to earlier, perhaps checkboxes of things that they should be doing that are actually detracting from patient care. So it's a really, really interesting point of contention, isn't mm, it? It is. You said you had beautiful Isan whilst you were still employed in the NHS, but you went back. So let's rewind. Mm. How was your pregnancy? And how was your birth? My pregnancy was spectacular. I loved being pregnant. Oh, spectacular. Yeah, I would, <laughs> Love I would, oh man, I would get pregnant over and over. I felt beautiful. I lost a lot of weight when I was pregnant. And what? yeah, it just, I felt just really wholesome and womanly. And I loved growing a baby. I loved feeling her inside me. And I had that same attitude that I've had about lots of things. Like nothing bothered me. I had no anxieties. I didn't fear a lot of things. And I'd been exposed to everything. I'd seen all the scary things yes. that people are scared of. And I had a couple of moments. I had a bleed at 10 weeks, six oh, wow. weeks even. It was just all night. And I remember that was the first time that I was like, oh, okay. And I thought that I'd miscarried. And then another bleed at 10 weeks. So the six week one, I was going into work the following day and my colleagues who were just amazing, just sort of rallied together and they got a consultant to come and scan me and whatever. And then the oh my God. 10 week Gosh, one, so I just scary. took time off work. It wasn't a heavy bleed. It was just like, no, I'm realizing maybe I'm just pushing my body a little bit much. And I remember mm. someone saying to me, she said, anything happens to your baby and you have to leave, you're replaceable, but your baby's yeah. not. Off you go. And so yeah. I think I ended up That's really great that. advice. It's just advice that I now give to other people all the time. And I had what's known as low PAPE. And PAPE is one of the hormones that is delivered through the placenta. And if you've got this in sort of low numbers, then there's a risk of a reduction in growth in the third mm-hmm. trimester. So they were trying to mm-hmm. give me increased scans. And I remember going getting a second opinion and transferring hospitals and doing all sorts because I didn't believe that there was anything wrong. Yeah. I knew that she was growing fine. My numbers were on the cusp. Very borderline. Yeah. So yeah. one hospital was like, yep, you need all these extra scans. And the other hospital was like, no, you're within our normal ranges. So I was like, well, I'm going to go with the normal ranges then. And that was the hospital that I worked yeah. at. And obviously I knew if there was anything wrong mm. and, and things like that, I could escalate it accordingly. And mm-hmm. I wasn't reckless. I was just being informed and doing what I Absolutely. felt was right. When I had to come back to the trust where I live, they were like, we'll book you an induction at 37 weeks. I was like, no, you won't. Why? And I was like, you won't book me an induction. But I why? won't be induced. That's so weird. <laughs> and they said, and it was just because of this risk of slow growth. And I was like, anyway, oh. they said, well, okay, fine. We'll scan you again at 39 weeks. And I was like, if you feel like you really have to, but I'm not going to be induced before my due date. And I'd booked an induction at the trust that I worked at for 42 weeks because I was like, if I'm yeah, going to get induced, yeah. I will only be induced here. Yeah, 42, fair no, enough. I'm not going to go. It was a healthy pregnancy. And did they did they have any evidence of growth restriction? So there is evidence of growth restriction, but again, my numbers were in the normal ranges. I was like, 
just mm. scan me at 39 if you really feel that you need to but I went into labour the day before my due date and I'd planned a home birth and again like my attitude with everything I wasn't married to the idea of a home birth I just simply didn't want to leave my house like I the idea of having to bring a baby back home I was just like oh no I can't be bothered with that so you know, <laughs> I'd rather just do it here, yeah I'd like. rather just do it at home and then go to bed so the midwife that came out to me the first one was sick in my toilet she was just like, I've just, what, been, I've just been sick. I think I've got food poisoning. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Oh my God. It was, so, it was like I... one of those like surreal things. But obviously, like I was like, I totally get that we get ill. Like it's fine. But it's just very funny that this has happened to you here and now. Absolutely classic. You're like, great. Thank you. Yeah. I'm trying to have a baby. And of course this would happen. Sod's law. Yeah. So then she left and then they wanted me to transfer into the unit for staffing. And I said, no, I was like, I'm very happy here. I'm contracting fine. I'm not going to go. I'm not going in. And then the midwife that came out to me really didn't want to be at home birth. She was really quite upset about it. And it was evident she wasn't very nice and the care wasn't very good. And eventually, after about five hours with her, basically just making me really apprehensive and uncomfortable in my own home, she said, oh, should I examine you? Because at this point, I had a baby that's known as OP, so back to back. That was really tough. That what so that does painful. is it just gives you like continuous contractions. So I I wanted pain relief, and then I said you can examine me again, and if I'm if I'm not progressed, then I want pain relief. If you examine me again, I hadn't pro- progressed. I went in. I remember her saying to me, "You're really tired anyway, and maybe if you weren't so tired, you could do this." But clearly, mm. you can't. And I remember thinking that was such a stupid thing to say to someone because, and knowing what I know about language, it's like that type of thing has the it basically puts the onus on you as you basically failed at doing this because your exhaustion meant that you couldn't do it. And I think it wasn't said with malice, but it wasn't necessarily the right thing to say because, Mm -hmm. of course, I'm tired. And then, long story short, her heart rate was going down after Mm -hmm. the contractions. And so they moved me to the delivery suite, put me up to the monitors. And where I worked, we did a lot of stuff with CTG monitoring and understanding Mm -hmm. sort of fetal hypoxia. So I knew a lot about how it worked. Well, of course, you're a trained midwife. You're going to be all over it, aren't you? But some trusts don't do as much learning on it. So when they hooked me up to the monitor... A doctor walked in and was like, yeah, so we're going to give you the hormone drip to speed things up Mm. because you're still five centimetres. And I was like, you're not going to give me the hormone drip because you're already telling me that my baby's heart rate is dipping with every contraction. Why would I then Mm. want to put more pressure on her? So I said no. And that upset her. And she stormed out and then she came back in and she said, you've got four hours. If nothing happens, then we'll be starting the hormone drip. And I was like, I remember thinking, oh, I'm not going to be pregnant in four hours. So don't worry. And then Mm. after she'd left about five minutes later, Ihsan's heart rate went down for about four minutes. And they all rushed in. And I remember being like, they were like category one cesarean section, um, Mm. which is under general anaesthetic. And I remember being like, no. Under a general, why? Because her heart rate wasn't coming back up. I was like, no, just wait. It will come back up. It will come back up. And they were like, we've got to go. I was like, no, we don't have to go. Arguing with them. And then her heart rate came back up. And they were like, okay, we'll de-escalate and go for a category two section where you're awake. I already knew that I was going to end up with a cesarean section the moment I stepped foot in the hospital. So I was like, yeah, whatever, fine, let's go. And what made you feel like that? I'd seen the series of events numerous times. It wasn't news to me. And then the moment yeah. they were like, her heart rate's going down with every contraction, I'd resigned myself to that. And that was it, really. 
Well, how did that make you feel? Because going from having planned a home birth where you're hoping that you can get away with a couple of stitches Mm -hmm. and be at home having tea, like with your baby there that day to then having a c-section and all the recovery that's associated with that what was going through your head and you said that you were resigned to it but it doesn't sound like it was an apathetic like resignation it sounds like that must have been quite upsetting so I describe my birth as being traumatic it sounds birth as being quite traumatic I think predominantly because I wasn't centered in it at all a lot of the things were happening around me and I think there were lots of different small things that seem small but that aren't that small and the resignation just comes from the fact that actually I just didn't care anymore I didn't want to be around these people I actually just wanted it to be over and I don't believe that anyone should get to the point in their birth where they want it to be over like where they'd allow anything to happen to them and I didn't trust the people and I didn't trust the place. And I'd resigned myself to it because I thought, well, let's just get this done. But that had far reaching impacts later on into the postpartum period. And yeah, it wasn't fun, but it, it was what it was. <laughs> but I think That's a lot really of it hard. is just very much, it's, it's why I do the work that I do. My own experience is why I do the work that I do to really get people to push for what they want and to understand the importance of getting what they want, really. You're definitely treated differently Mm -hmm. when you're a first-time mum versus second time. This is my second pregnancy. My son's also about two and a half. And I've just done it completely differently. I just have a confidence that I didn't have first time around. But when you're actually in that moment, it can be really difficult to speak up. Yeah, exactly. And also, I think it can be really difficult to assert yourself and to be confident in yourself if you've never experienced it. And I think there's a lot of gaslighting and a lot of the language that's used can feel very risk centred. Mm. And if you're told you do this, and if not, you're risking your baby's life, well, what are you going to do? Mm. We talk about the 2% risk of stillbirth, but we don't talk about the 98 percent chance of not having a stillbirth so it's always put on us in these like negative things and so we become very fearful and that's what causes a lot of our decision making especially with that first baby and it's really tough to really stand firm in your beliefs so when you ask me about what I'm doing and going back to antenatal education going back to preconception and really unpicking those feelings and those behaviors because it all it's all interlinked Absolutely. So, I mean, firstly, I just wanted to say I'm so sorry that you had that birth experience because there are just so many bits in there where I was just thinking, oh my God, like, why did she say that? Why did they use that language? But were you offered personally like a birth debrief or anything like that? No, no, no. I think that's what happens if your birth on paper just looks quite normal, then, Mm. you know, it's fine. And also, if I was ever going to speak about my birth, it was going to be in a really trusted, safe space. And that wasn't it. So I would never have gone anyway. Yeah. And that's the challenge, isn't it? People feel like they're returning to the scene of like their trauma to discuss the trauma. And actually, I'd never really thought about it that way, Um, that you just wouldn't have gone anywhere. That makes complete sense. Like, why would you have gone? It's really odd. So was she healthy? She was fine. She was like a really unsettled baby. But I I think actually that was a reflection of me. And Mm. I'm happy to take that one on the chin because I can see it for what it was. In what way? I just wasn't able to really show up for her in the way that I would now with a fresh perspective, I suppose. I was going through whatever I was going through and found it very difficult. The demands that were suddenly on me, 
And it just goes to show you, nothing can protect you from the transition of motherhood. As in like, I'm a midwife. I know all of this stuff. I've supported so many people to breastfeed and yet I really struggled to breastfeed myself. And I know what it is to see cesarean section wounds, but I struggled with my own. And it's just saying Mm. we're all at the end of the day, we're mothers and we give birth and we can all be touched by negative experiences and, and the struggles don't discriminate. No. And I think... That's one of those funny things as well, because, and it's part of the reason why I've been really desperate to interview a midwife, because I can imagine, and particularly somebody with my character, if if I felt like I knew everything about a particular process and I've, oh, I've seen thousands of, you know, women struggling with breastfeeding, or I've seen loads of women who have a cesarean incision Mm -hmm. that looks like that or whatever, you must approach it feeling like I've got this doubt, like I know what I'm doing. I'll be absolutely fine. And then to go through it yourself and be like, whoa, yeah, okay, (laughs) this is a shock. This is surprising, particularly on the breastfeeding thing. That must have been quite a shock. Yeah, the breastfeeding thing was definitely probably one of the bigger shocks because I thought that we'd take to it like ducks to water and actually it was much more complex than that. She had a severe tongue tie and lost a lot of weight and it took her about three weeks to get back to birth weight and I was very much like pumping and feeding and then pumping and oh gosh, it was awful. And it just took time. It needs support. It needs patience. It needs confidence. It It needs perseverance, but it also needs education and it needs compassion and it is just not as simple as wanting it is enough it's more than just wanting to do it her tongue tie was seen four times before finally someone would listen to me and then when we went to the tongue tie clinic they were like I haven't seen a tongue I'm surprised you've ever been able to feed with this tongue tie it takes a lot more than just desire and iron will but it was fine in the end she fed for two years and three months wow yeah it's fine that's amazing yeah it's knackering (laughs) (laughs) so it sounds like then giving birth really changed your perspective to then go back to work with all this did it feel like it changed your midwifery practice yeah definitely definitely it changed everything I think everything yeah I just I wasn't the same person anymore and I was very sure about who I was finally and it changed the care that I gave to people it, it changed how I questioned things and my belief in what was the right thing to do were there any particular occasions that stuck out to you that you think you did totally differently after you'd become a mum versus before I think all of it was different that kind of really being engaged with the person I was looking after although I was before but it was different even the language that I was using and really doing everything in my power to be like I'll I'll give you the birth that you want rather than just the birth that we can give you or that Mm -hmm. we do and the things that have been normalized and again we work within a system that that sometimes can't afford that but I think most midwives will say that they do their best to provide that but yeah definitely having Hassan changed it the whole thing must have just been completely life-changing. So how long did you stay in the NHS until you thought, okay, time to go? You stayed for another five months and then left. And did you have any idea of like where it was going to go? Because even speaking from my own experience, starting my own business, often what you end up with is quite a different beast to what you began. Yeah, I just thought I was going to go into another hospital. I didn't think that I was going to do anything else and then I only started offering birth debriefs in September 
I found that a lot of people were telling me their birth stories and and also that they didn't want to go back to their trusts and they wanted impartiality Mm. as well as knowledge. And and, and then it it took off. So I never, ever saw this being my business, but I'm, I'm so happy it is. Tell me about the whole business. What does it offer? So basically, I'm a hypnobirthing teacher, but I don't really teach hypnobirthing anymore. I probably take on two clients a year. <laughs> I love, I um, love that. I'm a hypnobirthing teacher, but yeah, don't really do hypnobirthing. No, no. I take on, <laughs> yeah, about two clients a year, two or three. And so the birth debriefs is basically now my full-time job. And it is just the opportunity to speak into like a safe and impartial space, confidential and impartial space about your experience. Now, I don't ask them what trust they had their babies in. I don't ask them the midwives names and things like that. I just, none of it matters. And if they want to have their notes, that's fine, but I don't need them. It's all about how they feel about things. I think if we, if we overlook how people feel about it, we'll never change the way we treat birth. It's really like exploring their feelings about it, validating them, explaining them, answering those questions, helping in terms of preparation for subsequent births, how they can really get the birth that they want. And yeah, it's a really fulfilling job. It's a really good business <laughs> idea because as you said, with hypnobirthing, there's lots of hypnobirthing courses out there. There are some excellent online ones as well. And Illy and I were talking a little bit about this before we started recording. The postnatal period is something that's still neglected. It's not just but but we were saying that it is definitely a wave that is starting to build. And it's not just the postnatal period, it's the postnatal period with a view to giving better births, as in, okay, you had one that didn't work brilliantly, but how can we make the next one? really amazing yeah. and how can we make it what you want and I just feel like it's such a positive way to look at it rather than just to sit with how awful something is it's like making somebody really feel heard so yeah. that their experience improves it's so important yeah exactly it's a really good job not easy to be balancing your own business with having a small person God, no. as well <laughs> <laughs> not easy at all tell me about the evolution of it did it just take off or what happened? Yeah, that's it. It was literally that. I put it on my Instagram and then people booked. <laughs> it's only really word of mouth, but I, people have been very pleased. So that's always good. And you've got such an impressive following. This is obviously something that is really resonating with people. And that must feel satisfying having been through what you've been through, which is such a massive life changing experience. And then you're doing something that's really helping other people. That must feel amazing. It definitely feels like the good thing to do. I think the fact that I have lived it helps and I still have an ability to separate myself. So I'm not, I don't make it about myself, but I can empathise and mm. I think it, it, it definitely helps people to feel more seen rather than being someone who works in that hospital and who perhaps doesn't get what you're talking about outside of a clinical level. Yeah, the support system you must have to keep all this going must be pretty impressive and to breastfeed until you said her son was two years and three months Mm -hmm. whilst also running a business and you said that she's two and a half so this is not that long ago that you stopped so my husband is spanish he is also one of eight so we're both from very big families oh wow he works from home so he still works for his family business in spain but here in the uk which is cool he he i think went through his own transition into parenting but now is like the best dad and really loves her because she's like a proper little person now and i think he finds this age way more 
easy then he found the newborn stage and and it's just easier with her if she's happy with both parents of course that's great and then last november moved into a very big house with my sister her husband and their two children so they've got two daughters who are five and two so yet we raise the kids together so i've got a very big support network she is one of the uk top 50 wedding photographers so she's very busy so when she goes out yeah, to work, very busy. I then <laughs> will look after her kids. And if I've got something, then she'll look after mine. And then the guys will help as well. So it's really a nice setup. It's a very sort of supportive setup. So it is, it's... Um, so it's like an amazing commune, yeah, basically. basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So good. So good. And so convenient. Like I've often joked with my friends, okay, we just need to live together. Together, together do like other, just replicate the village mm-hmm. we'll just replicate our own village exactly. and then it will be fine and great that you get on well enough with your sister it could only have ever been done with my sister because yeah, exactly. i think we just get each other we've been brought up by the same person and oh yeah yeah it makes it a lot easier share the same values yeah yeah exactly so how did you meet your husband so he was spanish mm. how did that happen so my sister, Salsaville, was sent to live in Seville. I was sent to Granada. She was sent to Seville. So she went to Seville the year before me for nine months. And when we went to pick her up, she, the people she was staying with, Omar is their cousin. So that's when I first oh. met him. I was about 11. And then when I moved there, I saw him again. And, and then I think I'd oh go God, back. So you've to literally known him a very since long you were time. 11. Yeah, but not oh known God. him, known him. I knew him yeah. when we were like 17. You are him. Exactly. So I'd Got go you. back every year to visit. And then when we were 17 and 18, he was like, oh, I've always known I was going to marry you. So, like, what do you want to do? And I was like, not marry you. <laughs> and um, But then three years later, we got married. So I guess that was that was destiny. <laughs> so he persuaded you in the end. Something like that. <laughs> so if he was a cousin of um, one of the families, I guess you guys share the same value system and that must help a lot. Yeah, exactly. It does, especially when it comes to raising children and we're very yeah. similar. So that definitely helps. So annoyingly, we are actually running out of time. I feel like I could literally <laughs> do for another four hours. But I guess a question I want to ask is, what are you really passionate about we've talked about advocacy and birth advocacy Mm. but when we think about the next 10 years and what that looks like what do you want to achieve I want to be known for my field I want to be the go-to in what I do my my aim is to have hundreds of women and uh, birthing people coming out of birth feeling empowered and feeling Mm. like regardless of mode of birth they were centered and they were cared for I want to have a business that essentially runs itself. I'd love to have a team of people working with me. Oh, yeah, lots of, lots of things, really. But I would love to have that sort of areas of passive income as well. So I wasn't always tied to mm. the computer or whatever. Perhaps another child, who knows? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, do you see more children in your future? Yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah. coming from the families that we come from and I think having had the experience that I had, I really know that can be different and I want mm. to experience that. Yeah, and coming from one of eight, it must just be such a contrast to mm. feel you've just, it's just you exactly. and your little person. You must be thinking about having a troop of people, particularly if you're literally in the village. I mean, calm down, Letty. One, one, one more will be fine. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I remember thinking that I'd have four and then I had one and I was like, nope, two is fine. Like, <laughs> I'm, good. I'm good. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> Stop it too, that's fine. Okay, and then I guess one more thing I want to ask you, just because you are obviously such a thought leader in your field and I think it's really important to ask people who are that, but what do you think 
society and governments can do better to support women in pregnancy and postnatally what should we be expecting in terms of improvements um so we should be expecting a consistent continuity of care because continuity of Mm. care has been shown to improve outcomes for both uh, mothers and babies we should be looking for better support systems for midwives better staffing because obviously uh, the sort of better supported less stressed midwife the better the care they can provide People are leaving midwifery in their hundreds and we really need to look at the the infrastructure of that. And I think there need to be more policies on better understanding, I suppose, of birth itself and how it really works. Going back to the physiological birth and moving away from the medicalization of birth. Now, that's not to say that medical birth is not important because it is, Mm. but it's that normal birth has been medicalized. So low risk Mm. birth has been medicalized and that has caused essentially like an, an epidemic of a lot of birth trauma. I think it's a really interesting point about normal birth being medicalized Mm. and again I think it's really good of you to be at pains to say that obviously medicalized birth does happen it's I think sometimes when people are talking about normal low-risk births and having natural birth they're almost negating the medical birth Mm. and actually I, I really liked how you phrased it which is that obviously there's a need for that sometimes and it's not to say that it's like irrelevant or shouldn't be talked about it's just that for low risk birds we need to accept that it's a natural process yeah exactly I think that's a really interesting point and um is there anything else that you want to shout about before you go I've so enjoyed our conversation (laughs) so interesting I think I've 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 spilt my guts (laughs) yeah (laughs) I will say though that for for lots of listeners I was speaking about this on my Instagram this morning the way in which I speak will come across as being quite cavalier and even for some people they'll perceive it as cocky or you know overconfident and actually I'm very determined to shut that down actually I have a very strong belief in what I do and in and in who I am and I hope that is what comes across yeah, it's obviously something that you've dealt with before, if you feel the need to say that, but that's absolutely not what has come across to me whatsoever. And I think that confidence should be a source of strength. And it sounds like you're doing exactly that with it. And people obviously get a lot of strength from your strength. Well, look, thank you. I'm really grateful that you joined me. Um, thank you for and having that me. you're part of the movement. I think there's a little team of people together now who are really wanting to change how we do birth and do birth better. And I feel like you're definitely one of those mm. people. So I'm just really grateful, Illy. Thank you so much for your time. You're so welcome. And I wish you all the best with this upcoming pregnancy and your postpartum period and and the transition from one to two. Yes, all the best. (laughs) Thank you. I very much appreciate it. I very much appreciate it. (laughs) For anyone who's listening, yeah, as I said, I'm I'm eight months pregnant. So I'm not far off, but you'll carry on hearing from me because that's the nature of you having your own business. And uh, (laughs) thank you, Illy. And I'll speak to you hopefully soon. You're most welcome. You take care. Well, You made it. We've reached the end. Enjoyed it? Drop me a note on Instagram or Twitter at New Leaf Podcast, or better yet, do me a quick rating on iTunes. Have a lovely day. And if you're a parent, have an even better night. Bye, everybody.